everyone, and welcome to the Lighthouse Beacon Podcast. I'm your host, Rami Shami, formerly the Multicultural Outreach Coordinator for Lighthouse for Grieving Children. And why I say formerly is because we've hired an incredible individual to assume the full-time role, and that's Miss Daniel Lobo. Uh, in these podcasts, we're outreaching to members of our diverse communities within the greater Toronto area of Southern Ontario to gain perspectives, experiences, and insights, and even recommendations on how children's grief is supported within our multicultural demographic. Today's very special guest is someone I had the privilege of hearing speak at a sacred fire at the Bear's Den led by Elder Little Brown Bear of the Aboriginal Healing Program, which is affiliated and hosted on-site at the Michael Guerin Hospital here in Toronto. And what she spoke to resonated deeply with me, that the trauma, grief, loss, and legacy that has come to our greater awareness now is not a one-day experience and a commemoration for Indigenous, Métis, Inuit, and First Nation peoples. And as she so eloquently and passionately spoke it, quote unquote, we live this every day. It's also very interesting and sad in the same context that my daughter, who is in attendance at the sacred fire that evening, she wanted to run over to Nadia and, and comment on her on her skirt. And I had to hold her back because she's very loquacious, um, was wearing an orange shirt to commemorate the occasion. And she wanted to wear that shirt the next day to school. And when she did, She's in grade five and she's 10 years old going on 16. <laughs> her classmates said to her, wrong day, Zemra, wrong day. And that was in honor of uh, the day of truth and reconciliation. As if the grief of the uncovering of the children buried in unmarked graves at residential schools across Canada is only experienced on a single day. So I think the education and learning and awareness has a long way to go before it reaches all our age demographics in all aspects of, uh, of our general society. That all being said, we're very honored to have joining us today, Nadia Thunderwoman George, to speak on Indigenous perspectives, rituals, and ways of honoring and supporting children's grief. Nadia is of Mi'kmaq First Nation and Canadian descent, and is making noise about the systemic neglect of Indigenous peoples in Canada. A nationally recognized public educator an award-winning actor, a social media personality. Nadia is combining over a decade of professional experience in social work with her lived experience to challenge perceptions one narrative at a time. While being an advocate for environmental justice and an extreme incline hiking enthusiast, I, I'd love to know what that means. I've done a lot of hiking and I'm a mountain biker, so we'll see if we get to that topic. Um, Nadia's work focuses on dismantling harmful narratives fighting for the equity of Indigenous peoples, and creating space for First Nation, Métis, and Inuit voices. Gwei, Nadia, an honor Gwei, to have you with yeah. us today. <laughs> an honor to have you with us today. Thank you very much for taking the time out of your very busy schedule to share your knowledge and wisdom with us. Oh, I'm very excited for this. Can, uh, can we begin by my asking you to open our podcast with a land acknowledgement? Absolutely. So I am situated in Halton region, and I uh, know that the Lighthouse uh, Grieving Center for Children is also situated on the Halton uh, region as well. So today I'd like to acknowledge that uh, Halton, as we know it, um, is very rich in Indigenous culture. And it is also a part of the Dish with One Spoon territory. And the Dish, or sometimes called the Bull, represents what is now Southern Ontario from the Great Lakes to and from Lake Simcoe into the United States. It is the traditional territory of many nations, including the Mississaugas of the Credit, the Anishinaabek, the Chippewa, the Haudenosaunee, the Wendat peoples, 
the Métis, and the Adewanderon. But what did these symbols signify? What were their intentions to have one dish and one spoon? The teaching is that we all eat out of the dish. All of us share this territory with just one spoon. All of us share the responsibility of ensuring the dish is never empty and that we take care of the land and all the creatures living on it. What's important to recognize is that there are no knives at the table, representing that we must keep the peace. The dish with one spoon is a treaty between the Anishinaabek, the Mississaugas, and the Haudenosaunee, binding each of these nations in sharing the territory and protecting the land. Subsequent Indigenous nations and people, along with Europeans and all newcomers, have been invited into this treaty in the spirit of peace, friendship, and respect. So why do a territorial or land acknowledgement? Indigenous people have been acknowledging the land at the start of gatherings, ceremonies, and events since time immemorial. Providing a land acknowledgement at the beginning of an event or meeting gives time for reflection and demonstrates recognition of Indigenous lands, treaties, and peoples. It involves thinking about what happened in the past and what changes can be made going forward in order to further the reconciliation process. Land acknowledgements mark a small but important step in the process of reconciliation and building a positive relationship with Indigenous peoples. By taking part in a land acknowledgement, you are taking part in an act of reconciliation, honoring the land and Indigenous presence, which dates back over 15,000 years, and acknowledging the enduring presence and resilience of Indigenous people in this area. It is a reminder that we are all accountable to these relationships. Thank you, Nadia. Thank you very much for that. Very well. Can you, <laughs> um, may you share, can you share with us a little bit more about your work in dismantling the harmful narratives? That, that captured me in terms of what narratives and how harmful they are, and especially the noise you're making in regard to, as you said, the systemic neglect of Indigenous people in Canada. Yeah, I think the really big piece is about teaching our future generations and having these conversations in our homes, at our dinner tables, and what do those narratives do to the minds of our young ones, whether you're Indigenous or non-Indigenous. So it's really about breaking the cycle of incorrect myths, stereotypes, that happen in regards to how people view Indigenous communities and Indigenous individuals. And so when challenging those narratives, it can be something as simple as your neighbor comes over and says something that is either inappropriate or misguided, and standing up to that and saying, actually, did you know? Or, oh, that's interesting. What brought you to say that? to really kind of get people to start thinking about the words that they're speaking. As my elder, Elder Little Brown Bear says, you know, we have to walk together in this as non-Indigenous and Indigenous people, but we have to do so with soft moccasins and with open hearts. And to do that, we need to be able to listen. We need to be able to challenge what we've known what we've been told our whole entire lives. So essentially challenge those narratives around Indigenous perspective, uh, sorry, the perspectives of Indigenous people. It's really about helping educate people on truth and, you know, breaking down this idea of, you know, that we all 
get free education and that we don't pay taxes and that, you know, we're all stigmatized by this narrative that, you know, we're we're all drunks or alcoholics or, or addicts or, you know, these really, really harmful pieces. Because we want our future generations uh, in our Indigenous communities to be proud of who they are. For so long, um, that's been kind of pushed to the side. And there's been so much trauma around those pieces of being Indigenous that we we want to break that cycle. And also we want to break the cycle of non-Indigenous youth and young children growing up, you know, perpetuating these narratives that unfortunately at that age they don't even recognize is is wrong. So that's kind of where my work starts. And I think a big piece of that is educating the ones who educate their own and hoping that those conversations are going to happen in the home and they are going to happen with their neighbors and and anyone that they really come in contact with. Yeah, thank you, Nadia. Those perspectives, may I ask you, are even intergenerational? I mean, they're, they're, the, the biases, the racism, the stereotypes are passed down generation, generation. I've heard so many in my, my own backgrounds and in my own life how do how do we dismantle that piece there, the intergenerational piece? Do we start with the current generation? Do we address pre-generations who are somewhat propagating this? How do we how do we address that? I think we need to address it on all, all levels. I think you make a good point about it. You know, it does it start with the future ones? Does it start with now? Does it start with the past? I think it has to be a very holistic approach and a wraparound approach to all of the generations. For Indigenous people, um, you know, especially those who have been through the residential school um, system, or should I say the assimilation institution, and those who have been a part of the 60 Scoop, you know, they've, they've had this narrative fed to them for a very long time about, you know, being Indigenous is wrong. Um, you should be ashamed. You should feel guilty. So we have that section of trauma. So we need to address that within our Indigenous communities for those who have grown up through those systems. And then we need to start talking to our Indigenous youth about it and really kind of empowering them to, you know, dig deep into that culture. It's a part of who they are and that you don't have to, you know, live on reservation to be Indigenous. To be Indigenous is a way of life. We, we live it, we breathe it, it is a, an essential part of who we are. And then when we look at the other side to the non-Indigenous people, I think we, the same. I think we need to be talking to people who are, you know, <laughs> from the 60s and, and moving forward, um, or anyone who's even at, at, at any age. We need to start letting them know that what they've grown up with is incorrect. And that the the perceptions that they have, you know, really need to be be challenged and be talked about. So I think that we should actually be addressing it at every age, on every level. I think that it's unfair to say that we want to protect our non-Indigenous youth, that this is too harmful of a conversation, yet we expect our Indigenous youth to have to live with it every day. I don't yeah. think that that's fair. And I think that there are ways that we can approach it um, with our youth that will help them understand, will help them feel differently about it and see it differently. I think that if we wait until they're older, we've now missed the mark. 
And we know that because we know, you know, in birth and in brain growth, essentially, we're, we're teaching our children at a very young age. And those are the things that stick with them. So we need to start doing it at that point where, you know, they're able to kind of let that sit. I think, as I said, if, if we start teaching it at the high school age or even, you know, grade five or grade six, I think we're missing a, a big uh, piece and time component where we could be doing some really good work. I couldn't agree more, Nadia. And I'd never heard that term, assim- although I appreciate it very much now. And, and with your permission, I would use it, assimilation mm-hmm. institution. <laughs> well yeah. said, well said. <laughs> it's uh, still just that's... a nice way of putting it, but it's more accurate. <laughs> <laughs> it is much more accurate, especially from the, the intentionality of it. You mentioned, uh, uh, you mentioned in regard to non-Indigenous children not being exposed and Indigenous children being exposed to the trauma and legacy of assimilation institution and, and what have you. Why do you think that happens, Nadia? What are, what are non-Indigenous peoples trying to protect in that regard? Well, I think one of two things. I think deep down inside, they see the harm that, that the assimilation institutions have had on our Indigenous youth. And I think like any good parent, essentially, the way we see it is that we don't want to harm our children. But at what point do we not join and do we not stand with and do we not support human to human. So I think that's one piece is that people are afraid that their children may not be able to handle those conversations. And I would challenge that. I think that's absolutely incorrect. I, I know kids are very curious <laughs> and they're, they're very resilient to information and they want to know more. I think it's more about how are we going about that, that we need to be um, more cognizant of. And I think the other piece to that in regards to teaching our youth is ourselves, having to look inside ourselves and being like, wow, I've gotten this wrong this whole entire time. That's a big challenge, right? I mean, when we talk about grief, that's, that's grief in itself, having to unlearn everything that we've, we thought was true or, or that we had learned, um, because then we're challenging our own morality, our own morals. And, and how we've gone through life, right? So then you're addressing guilt and shame and all of these other things, right? So I think those are probably the two bigger components. Um, I'm sure there's lots of other reasons why people feel uncomfortable with those conversations. But I think if we just start really asking the like, okay, well, well, why is that? What makes you feel uncomfortable about it? And taking the time to actually address our inner selves and reflect that way, I think would be a big, big help to moving that forward. As you mentioned, Nadia, thank you for that. It also, I, I, as I understand, to unlearn that which we've learned leaves us in a place of humility and vulnerability as well mm-hmm. uh, in, in that regard, because it dismantles all the constructs that we've created to live our lives within. Is that correct? Yes. And I think as we we address those pieces, it's difficult, right? I mean, because essentially they're a piece of who we are. They're a part of our our pillars that have have built us. And it's kind of like, okay, now what? (laughs) So now that I have all this new information, what do I do with it? How do I manage this? And how do I take this in and not be completely you know, as you said, <laughs> dismantled by it. 
it's, you know, it's an interesting conversation. I'm sure we will get into that in a little bit. Yeah, looking inwards is never easy when we're starting to to challenge those pieces. And as I said, with the guilt and shame aspect of it, you know, working on that um, and understanding what are what are we accountable to hold as non-Indigenous people, and what are we accountable to to changing. Yeah, that accountability piece is something that's really come to the forefront now, especially as I regard uh, for non-Indigenous people, where and when and how in terms of education, learning, knowledge, and the trauma and and loss and genocide that's been experienced by Indigenous peoples. Now, before we move forward, and and my apologies, I wanted to ask you this the day we spoke, and and I was kind of shy about it, but may I ask how you received your spirit name, Thunder Woman? Yeah, actually. Um, so I have um, known Elder Little Brown Bear for for some time now, for quite some time. And your spirit name, so there's many ways that you can get your spirit name, and, and that changes nation to nation. So I don't want to speak for all nations. But from my teachings is that your spirit name typically comes from your grandmother um, when you're born. But with the assimilation institutions with the kidnapping of children, the displacement of our Indigenous youth at young ages, many of us have been detached from our communities. And that is what happened with my um, grandma Ruby. She was adopted by an English family. And the same thing happens for her um, being raised up to not be Indigenous and to not be proud of who she was, although there was always an underlining tone to that. She was always letting us kind of know <laughs> um, those pieces, but she still fought with that about, you know, the idea of wanting to be Indigenous or not. So for me, I did not get that opportunity to have my spirit name given to me when I was young. So another way that you can go about that is speaking with uh, a very trusted and respected elder in the community. I just want to be really careful about recommending that to people because there are many people out there who claim to be elders and they are not. So we, we do have to be really careful around that piece. And essentially, you will go to your elder and you will gift them a tobacco tie from your left hand as it is closest to your heart and you will ask if they would be willing to call on to the spirits and be open to having your spirit name come to them. So this is what I had done with my elder and it took some time. Spirit names aren't just given right away. They can be done around a sacred fire. They can be done in various forms. Some people wait years to get their spirit name, even if they've gifted their elder years previous. So it's essentially something for me is that you kind of have to, I don't want to say earn, but creator will know when you're ready. Creator will know when you've done the work to have your spirit name given. So um, with COVID, it was a little bit more difficult. We did not get to do it around the sacred fire. Um, normally, you would be around the sacred fire and you would invite the people who are close to you to come. And when you're given your name, they would say your name out loud so that way your ancestors could hear it on the West. So that way when you are done living this life and you move on through into the spirit world, they know who you are and uh, they recognize you when you get to the gate, <laughs> essentially, <laughs> or the door. 
So COVID kind of put that a little bit on hold for me, but um, me and Elder Little Brown Bear did meet and connect. And it was quite interesting story, actually, because um, the day before was my father's birthday. And my elder had no idea that that was happening. And I remember speaking to my dad. I was coming actually from set. And I was speaking to my dad in my car who has passed away. He's now in the spirit world. And I was just like, you know, am I doing the right thing? Am I doing more harm to community? Like, I just wish, you know, I could have a sign or to know that you're proud of me or the work that I'm doing. And it was interesting because um, the very next day I got a call from elder, um, from my elder. And he was like, I'm not sure why, because we were going to wait until we could do it around the sacred fire. And he said, but the spirits came to me last night and I'm supposed to give you your name. So it was a really kind of like a skin crawling, (laughs) creepy, but exciting situation. Um, and yeah, so, I mean, typically there is a whole process to it. And as I said, your spirit name doesn't just come when you want it to, it doesn't work like that. (laughs) So it was really interesting that it happened at that the very next day after I had spoken with my father. And the following Monday, the next week, I met with elder, uh, my elder, and he gave me my name. And to be to have the spirit name of Thunder Woman is, it, honestly, it's a really big responsibility because thunder beings are message bringers. Um, we make noise. Uh, we let people know <laughs> that something's coming. Um, and uh, so I, I wasn't surprised, essentially, that that was my name, because I think that's something I've been doing since I was very young. Um, <laughs> but it does hold a big responsibility to community and to the work that I'm doing and to make sure that the messages I'm putting out there are, you know, supportive to our communities and to also not take up space for other people's voices, so much like when the thunder comes, the storm comes, the lightning happens afterwards. So we're more a sense creating space for other people to start telling their stories and to start being heard. So yeah, uh, being a thunder being is a big one, but it's one that I hold very dear to my heart and I hope to do it justice. Well, by what I've heard, what I've learned of you, what I've read about you, (laughs) I can humbly uh, align with the fact that I think you're doing it very well justice. So thank you for that, Nadia. Uh, you. you mentioned your father had uh, mm. had died or passed away some time ago. And, and that, I just want to uh, segue that into grief. We've talked a little bit about trauma and grief and what have you. Would you kind of share with us your experience of grief, especially from an Indigenous perspective, at the experience of loss of the passing away of your father? Yeah, that was um, a difficult one for me for a couple of reasons. One, because my father has been in institutions, so the jail system, correctional system, for most of his life, trying to deal with his own trauma and identity crisis and, you know, identity trauma, essentially. And for most of those years, you weren't allowed as an Indigenous person to celebrate ceremony, to go to sweat lodges, to be able to do any of the healing aspects that we would normally do with our people in our communities and through our teachings. And so it probably wasn't until about 97 or 98, I believe, where he first was allowed to start going to sweat lodge and sacred ceremonies and healing ceremonies um, within the institutions. And it wasn't long after that my father passed away. So for me, 
that's a really difficult piece because I think he finally found home and then it was like taken away essentially. But I have to remember, you know, he is with our ancestors and in the spirit world. So I know that that's continuing on somewhere. And then I think the other piece, which I am a huge advocate for, is the Clean Water Initiative. And my father had liver issues due to use, uh, drug use. And when he was in the institutions, he was getting clean. He had been clean or sorry, I don't want to use that term. No longer he had been sober for some time. And then he was in the Walkerton jail and the Walkerton water crisis had happened. And I just remember him telling me, you know, he's trying to put his own health issues aside and just really trying to educate me on that we need to start speaking up for our our brothers and our sisters and, you know, that this is kind of a different instance because it will get dealt with. But our our people are living with this every day and our people are dying from this every day. And so we know <laughs> that part of what I guess essentially exacerbated his health conditions was the fact that he had been drinking uh, contaminated water and he was already diagnosed with liver issues. Oh. So, yeah. So for me, it was, you know, his passing, it was, it's hard. I think the grief part, because my father had a very difficult life. So I do believe that it was his time to go. He had found his teachings. Um, he had been able to engage and creator was like, okay, you know, you're healthy and you're healing and you're ready. It's time to come home. But at the same time, I just feel like if, if those things hadn't have happened, my father might still be here today. So that grief sits with you. It, it never really goes away. It gets, it gets a little bit easier to deal with <laughs> um, as you, you gain those coping skills and tools. But as a young person in my 20s, to lose my father was a big piece for me because he was my guiding light, essentially, to my, my Indigenous ancestry and connection to my culture. So to have a nav- navigate that on my own while not being close to <laughs> my own nation and community has been difficult. And so I've dealt with my own identity trauma. Um, going through that. But I feel confident that, you know, I'm carrying on his legacy. And I think that's kind of what helped me heal. I can only imagine, or maybe I can't even imagine the aspects of identity trauma and how you spoke of the legacy he's left with you in terms of learning more about your culture and your heritage and your rituals and what have you. But from a grief perspective, Nadia, what supports are there for someone maybe younger than you were when you you lost your dad, somebody in their teens, in their youth, uh, as an Indigenous Inuit, Métis, First Nation child. Are there services out there that would support their grief? Yeah, I mean, I always recommend that if they're not connected to um, community, for uh, whatever reason that is, that they reach out to First Nations Friendship Centres. They can reach out to the Aboriginal Centre in Toronto. Even hospitals now, thank goodness, uh, most of them have Indigenous liaisons or Native liaisons that can work in our traditional teaching healing ways to help these these kids and have them really connect to their heart center. 
And I think that's really the biggest piece, whether you're working with Indigenous or non-Indigenous youth, is addressing what does the body need? Because when we heal our bodies and we address what our bodies need, our, our minds follow. And then we can start, you know, to be able to use and some of those westernized um, medical model pieces. I think it's a whole, I think we have to have it from a holistic approach. I think that there are benefits to both sides. I think that the Indigenous cultural teachings, along with some of the medical model things that we have here in the Western world, are really great when you combine them both. But there are there are definitely plenty of resources for Indigenous youth if they have access to them. And, and that's a whole other conversation on, on its own, because not all Indigenous communities have access to those things. So in that case, I can only hope that they have aunties and uncles that they can turn to, people that they love, because really that's what it's about. If If we have stabilization and we have love, we can usually get through a lot of things. And and we can heal. And I think that's always been the biggest piece for for my understanding of my teachings within our Indigenous community is surrounding each other with love and with kindness and really addressing and giving space for us to cry and to feel and to yell and to, to stomp the drum. <laughs> the drum itself is one of the most healing pieces. Not only because it mimics the heartbeat, so it's a, a sound that we, from a very early age, are quite comfortable with and makes us kind of feel grounded, but also the idea of drumming helps us get that tension out of our bodies. And that's what we need. We need to be out of that fight or flight mode, and we need to stabilize our internal core. Um, and, and same with the beating. The beating, it gives us something to focus on. It gives us an actual tangible gift at the end. So it gives us, you know, motivation to want to do something, but also that intrinsic and extrinsic, <laughs> um, <laughs> essentially those motivations that you get and the prizes essentially, right? So I think that there's a lot of, um, you know, whether it's our dancing, our singing, it, it, what's interesting about it is it always connects back to the body and we're always working on that body piece. So Nadia, when you're speaking about the body and healing the body, mm-hmm. is that what you're referring to in terms of the fight or flight piece? Or is it yes. something it is, eh? Mm-hmm. And can you can you expand a little bit on that, this this aspect of healing the body through calming or dysregulating or desensitizing the fight or flight response? Yeah, essentially when we are sitting in fight or flight, there's a what I like to call a charge. So there's a neuron charge to an event that has happened to us or a memory um, or something that is there. And when something comes close to it or resembles it or is familiar to it, that charge sets off and it activates how our brain processes that information. So whether we're in fight or flight, we're going to act in the according way. So if we're in fight, we're getting defensive, possibly angry. If we're in um, the flight mode, you know, we're, we're shutting down. Um, we're numbing ourselves out, hence addiction and all those other pieces that come with it, depression. So uh, being able to address that charge and to be able to extinguish that charge allows our body to start processing those events and start processing the, that information differently. So that's kind of what we want to focus on 
is changing the way that our body essentially feels those events. So that way our brain will act in accordance to that. Yes, yes, yes. That makes a lot of sense. And how does drumming facilitate that? Well, I think, again, we know that music is healing, the sound of the drum, but more so the idea of the the tension piece. Our bodies are holding that somewhere. And often when I speak to clients about trauma and I ask them where they feel it in their body, they're feeling it in their chest, they're feeling it in their throat, sometimes their stomachs, but there's a feeling there. And so I ask them, you know, what do you think your body needs? More often, their body needs to be able to get that tension up and out. So with some people, we're throwing a yoga ball against the wall, or um, we're, we're stomping our feet with kids, or we're running it out on a track, but our body needs to get that tension out. And so with the drumming, that is what you're doing, essentially. You're, you're beating the drum, you're moving your body, you're, you know, you're singing. You're, and so all of that tension is coming out. And you do that until you, you feel a sense of calm. And so I always like to say, do you feel better, worse, or same? And hopefully it's better. But if it's the same, then it's like, okay, we just need to get a little bit more of that out. That means that's still sitting there. So let's, let's get that up and let's get that out. I haven't had anyone tell me they feel worse. (laughs) That's not to say it won't come. Um, But usually those techniques are very effective. We just don't think about it because when we deal with, with many adults, we're asking them to talk about how they feel. And sometimes that can be more triggering and can be more harmful. We have to be really careful around how we're managing stories, narratives, and how we're implementing those, those body, uh, body works. Wonderful insights, Nadia. Wonderful insights. Nadia, you mentioned access, access to grief support within Indigenous communities, and it's a whole other conversation. Can we have a little bit of that conversation now, what your thoughts are on that or what some of the challenges and lack of access that you've come, become aware of? Yeah, I, you know, it's interesting because I just did um, a talk for Think 2030 that was presented by Elevate in regards to sustainable solutions. And uh, my panel specifically was talking about environmental racism. And essentially, that is a part of it. Uh, When we talk about access, we're really talking about the lack of access for Indigenous communities to health support, to mental health support. and the idea that we know that these communities, you know, often they're titled marginalized or racialized communities, but really what they are are ignored, purposely ignored communities. And we know that the trauma is there. People in power, the government, they know that the trauma is there. They know that the healing needs to happen. Um, And they know that it needs to happen in a way that the community wants it to happen. So, so often we have these conversations around, well, we tried to come in and help and they didn't want our help. Well, we don't want your idea of what you think is going to be fitting. You know, we, we, you tried that and look where it went. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So essentially what's happening is if we look at places like, you know, the uh, Northwest Territories, for instance, Um, I was in Sachs Harbor. Um, which holds, I think, about approximately 75 people in that community. And I remember speaking with someone. I had actually, (laughs) one of my teeth had actually broken apart 
um, while I was up there. And so we were having this conversation and just even about the dental care and how there's a dentist that comes in once a month and he's only there for, I think, two days. I could be wrong, so I don't want to completely you know, quote that. But he's not there long. Let's just say that. <laughs> and to have to work with all of the people in the communities who are in need of these supports. And that's just one example. And most often, there isn't enough time to do the proper work. So, you know, what's happening is people my age and younger are just having teeth pulled, right? What does that do to someone's confidence? We think about it. Then we talk about the mental health pieces. When going into those communities, we have to be super respectful. We have to take the time to listen. Even myself as an Indigenous person, I don't come from those nations. I, I wasn't raised with that culture or those teachings or their everyday life. So it was even for me, like I had to remember to listen and to hear what they had to say. But most often we're not taking the time to do that. And so these are places and not just rural, we're, we're seeing it on, you know, other reservations and um, lands that are close to cities that don't have access to their own hospitals, to social workers. And even when they do, you know, we have to ask, how knowledgeable are those people who are doing the work in that community to really understand what's going on in the community and historically what has been happening to these people? So, it, I mean, the access is a really big thing. It It is hard. And I think if we look at the historical context of, you know, Indigenous people trusting and engaging with Europeans and settlers, it, the, the history isn't good. So, of course, they're going to be a little bit put off. Maybe they're not going to be as accepting when you come into the community, but that's not their thing to deal with. It's our thing to deal with. And we have to be willing to do that work and to understand that those relationships and that trust takes time. And sadly, in the Western world, everything is so fast. It's so quick. Everything has a timeline. Everything has a deadline. Um, and we're not looking at it from a really, truly healing perspective. So, you know, to, to have a social worker come in once a month and try and sit down and talk with you, it, it just, we know that that doesn't work. So we, that's, you know, that is a really big piece of it. And I, I wish, I'm not sure what the solution is into gaining more access. All I can hope is that, you know, we can continue to empower our youth to, you know, get into those roles, into those helping and healing roles. So that way they, they can support themselves and can help their, their own communities in a way that they feel is adequate and appropriate. The way they feel is adequate and appropriate and not someone else coming in, especially from a non-Indigenous perspective, mm -hmm. teaching and telling, this is how we will support you. Is that correct? Yes. Yeah. And, and if I may front this to you, and maybe this is loaded, I'm not sure, but if I may present this to you as an organization, a children's grief organization with a peer support model, Lighthouse for Grieving Children is based on a non-Indigenous way of supporting grief, right? And facilitating grief support. How do you, how do you, would you, in your perspective, feel Lighthouse would be received by Indigenous children, First Nation children, Inuit, Métis children? Is it a model that would work? Is it something that has to be changed? And we, we adopt a culturally humble approach, which we try to learn from others how we can provide support or how we can 
facilitate a grief support. What are your thoughts on that, Nadia? Yeah, that is actually a hard one to answer. One, because I'm actually not sure what exactly your model is. I don't know what programs you offer. But if they don't see themselves represented, if they don't see their culture represented or their teachings or their everyday life represented, then it's always going to be uncomfortable, right? It's like going into another country and you don't speak the language. You don't read the language. You don't know that they have siestas at two o'clock and you're wondering where did everybody go? It's awkward, (laughs) right? It's awkward and it's uncomfortable. And you're kind of standing in the middle of a town and you're all by yourself. (laughs) There's nowhere to go because the restaurants are closed. (laughs) So I I think representation is a big piece. It's a huge piece to proper reconciliation and building supports within those systems. I think to do that, you know, I would suggest going and and making the effort to speak with, you know, elders or, or healing people within the communities that surround Halton, uh, Indigenous communities, and really working in a meaningful way, in a collaborative way, to figure out how can those healing methods from an Indigenous perspective be implemented into the core of your models. Now, that's not to say that you don't have stuff that's going on that would be similar. Maybe there's music or art therapy that's happening, and that's good for everyone, no matter what age, no matter where you come from. Those are always really healing aspects. But I do think that we need to be able to see ourselves in those spaces, to feel comfortable, to know that people actually care and they're they're willing to work in a way that is, I guess, loving and kind to to Indigenous people. And I think that's, I'm going to call Halton out a little bit, because I, when I moved here, you know, eight years ago, that was a huge shock for me. There from my understanding, were no other people that identified as Indigenous around me. We don't have a friendship center here, anywhere in Halton, which is really astounding to me. So I think as children move into this area or are being supported by this area who are connected or claim Indigenous identity, that in itself already makes someone feel like they're not welcome. So we have to be really, really careful around how we're implementing, what we're implementing, and um, who's carrying out those those models. I hope that answered your question. <laughs> it did. You know what it also brought to, to mind, Nadia, um, is something that's it's, uh, aligned with what we've heard from other non-Indigenous communities, like the Pakistani Muslims, Ahmadiyya Muslims, the Hindu, the Chinese. Like, There's a lot of communities that feel the same very similarly, that we're not represented. You haven't come and talked to us just yet, which we did. I mean, this has changed in the past couple of years, mm-hmm. but along, across social services, across the province, really, because I also work in hospice palliative care, is this cultural humbly approach to hear and learn from those we are attempting to serve, and even if mm-hmm. we're appropriate to serve and have them represented in, in our programming, in our, in our, in the, even the look and optics. You know, one of the challenges mm-hmm. of Lighthouse for Grieving Children is that it's built out of a church. And that came up in a uh, multicultural audit that we did uh, a couple of years ago. In the optics, we invited members of the communities of the diversity of, of Halton and 
in, in Milton, what have you, in the region, to, to even look at us and see what they saw. And it's so interesting what came up. And that's the implicitness, I think, that sometimes we struggle with as all social service organizations in many ways, is this implicitness, this bias that we don't see what we don't know, right? And that's why we outreach to individuals like yourself to learn, to really listen and mm-hmm. learn. And that, that's something I heard from Little Brown Bear, the, you know, one of the things that really stuck in my mind is walking with soft moccasins and listening, truly mm-hmm. listening to what others say. Yeah, it's it's interesting as you, you know, you bring up the church, right? Because for Indigenous people, we know what that symbolizes. It yeah. symbolizes loss, grief, hurt, trauma, <laughs> murder, uh, lots of lots of uncomfortable feelings um, that nobody should have to feel. And I think the other piece, um, as you talk about representation, is one of the key factors that I find, I will personally speak about, um, is this idea that, you know, we, we want full representation. But for some reason, Indigenous people are always left out. Now, why that is, I can only correlate to the fact that the the government doesn't or is struggling, I will say, to admit the wrongs of how this nation was built. It's easy to, you know, support. Um, I just want to be really careful how I say this because I don't want to do harm to these communities. So it's it's easier from my perspective, from what I'm seeing, the government is supporting, you know, Asian movement. They're supporting the other kind of BIPOC movements because in their view, they are <laughs> essentially, you know, the peacekeepers, the people who are welcoming, the people who are loving. Now, that's I'm not saying that's true. I don't think that's accurate at all. <laughs> um, but that's, from my my mindset, how the government's perceiving it. But when they have to start addressing Indigenous people and representation and owning that, they're having to own, essentially, sorry, I'm not sure if I'm allowed to swear on here, but yeah. they're, they're, they're owning, they're, they can't own their own shit. Right. It's it's easy to say, oh, we we are and I will use this word because it's been used many a times from them. Oh, we're the saviors. We we will welcome these people in and we will make them feel at home and we will keep them safe. But when they have to address that in the own wrongs and the own harms that they have done to indigenous people, they just can't. And that is a really big piece. And that's where we talk about the accountability piece. Canada is not this happy, wonderful, let's have bacon and maple syrup country. (laughs) There is a huge historical and ongoing, very dark narrative and continued actions that are happening here. And they're continuously swept under the rug. And there's tons of placating and gatekeeping that happens around Indigenous communities. And so for me, we have to start calling out as professionals in the social work field or in the helping field and making the government accountable, making them have to really open their eyes, like you said, listen, and start taking action to doing what is right by Indigenous people and by by all people who come from any kind of racialized or different culture or, um, you know, within Canada. 
whether that be newcomers or people who have been here for a long time. So when people are saying, you know, we, we haven't been seen, we haven't been recognized, I, I feel for those communities too, because we, we know what that's like. We've known it for hundreds of years. And I think the other piece is the Indigenous, the indigenous piece is also a touchy one because people don't know how to start. They're, they sometimes are afraid to go into these communities and things like that. And most often I hear it's because, you know, we're not welcome there. Well, yeah, you got you to earn it. Keep trying. Don't just go in once and give up. That's, that's not true. That's lazy work. Do what you need to do to show those people that you have true good intentions in working in collaboration with them, not just throwing your jargon at them, not just coming in with your solutions. Let them know we are, here to, we are here to support what it is that you would like to see happen. We understand that there, there is a lot of trust that needs to be repaired, and we're willing to do that work. And I think that that'll be the first step in starting to be able to incorporate these things. And as you said, Nadia, the trust, it takes time. And mm-hmm. it can't be a, an, an expression of tokenism. There's mm-hmm. that accountability piece uh, and, and the building of trust and the historical perspectives of it takes time and it takes intentionality and it takes authenticity in why and how, you know, those relationships are are being built. And I, I so appreciate how you aligned and equated, I don't know what the right word would be, of immigrant refugee populations coming to Canada and experiencing that alienation, that segregation, where Indigenous peoples have been experiencing that for eons, for for hundreds of years in that regard. Mm -hmm. So given that, especially from a perspective of intergenerational impact and trauma, do you feel there is an opportunity or that there is movement now towards accountability and healing some of that intergenerational aspect. And I'll tell you why I ask this, because I work also in hospice palliative care and some of the individuals I serve at the deathbed who are indigenous, who are Métis, Mm -hmm. speak of their grandmothers and great-grandfathers from the perspective of trauma. And yet they haven't been in assimilation institutions themselves, but they are telling me of the trauma they experienced as a result of the intergenerational aspect that has become them from their forefathers and mothers. Mm-hmm. So do you feel there is movement in that accountability piece? I mean, you hear, you know, we had this year the Orange Ribbons. We had uh, the National Day of Truth and Reconciliation. But is that true accountability? Or is there's much more that needs to be done? Oh, there's so much more that needs to be done. I think we are just at the tip of the iceberg. I think that there is going to be years of work that is going to have to happen there from non-Indigenous people, from people in power, from policymakers, change makers. I think, you know, it's, it's nice <laughs> that, you know, the government has dedicated a day. Do I think that that's true action? No. I think it's easy to, to hang up a poster. I think it's different to carry the poster around your neck and walk around with it and have conversations with the people you meet right? So I think when we look at it from that perspective, although there is change happening, right, we are seeing um, reconciliation happen on different levels. Um, But I do think that there is more work that needs to be done. And when we look at the accountability pieces, it's, like I said, it's on all levels, It, it starts with us, 
It's us bringing it to communities. It's communities bringing it to members of parliament. It's members of parliament, you know, taking those actions and changing those policies. It's it's hard because I think there's a lot of work that's being done on the ground, but it's having people in power creating space for those voices and representing those voices in an accurate way. So do I think that there's movement happening? Absolutely. I think that our Indigenous youth, especially with social media, right, have been able to find other Indigenous mentors or people they can look up to or representation that's happening in the social media world for them. So, you know, that space is being created for them to be proud of who they are and to start working through some of the things that their parents may not have been able to work through. And when we look at intergenerational trauma, you know, just because someone didn't go to an assimilation institution or wasn't a part of the 60 scoop or a part of the foster system, what we know is that intergenerational trauma is genetic. It is in DNA. It changes your DNA. And we know that through research done from Holocaust survivors and their future generations. So so the facts are there. So we have to start changing how we are addressing these these pieces with our future generations so we can start breaking those cycles, so we can start changing the DNA in a more <laughs> positive and healthy way. So I'm not surprised that people in hospice are are speaking in the way that this has affected them, right? There's been a chain of broken and misplaced love, essentially. I mean, when when you're not taught how to love, when you're not shown love at a young age, it's hard to know how to show it. It's hard to know how to give it. So I think we need to take that into consideration. We also need to start being accountable again to our own narratives when we're seeing, you know, homeless Indigenous people on the street or, or anyone who is homeless on the street. We have to start being kind. And understanding that for many of these people, they're still in a very much childlike state. Their brains are actually, they actually have an organic brain injury due to trauma that they may have faced. Their brains possibly did not develop in the same way that a brain that had been loved and nurtured from the beginning would develop. So their whole connection with themselves and the world is going to be different. But we have to be accountable to the trauma in Indigenous communities that was that was done to them, right? So I, I believe there's still so much more work that needs to be done on all levels. I couldn't agree more, Nadia. Yes, yes, it definitely there's a DNA component that is researched and proven. Definitely there's a genetic component to this. And there's an accountability piece that goes far beyond just, and not to minimize or dismiss, but just tying orange ribbons and wearing orange shirts. There's so much that can be involved in terms of the learning and uh, the dismantling of policies. And And I, I love the term to use, and, and and I've never heard it before. seems like I have never heard anything, but this term environmental racism uh, and how it applies to Indigenous peoples. One thing I wanted to share with you, and I'd, wonder if one, uh, I'd welcome your perspective on it, is that now I'm recognizing 
Lighthouse for Grieving Children consulted Little Brown Bear and we kept our orange ribbons. We kept the orange ribbons uh, tied. A lot of organizations are taking them down now. They put Mm -hmm. them up for the month or two months. They showed support and now it's on to the next thing. From the perspective of a a grieving child or grieving youth or even adults from indigenous uh, uh, communities, what does that symbolize taking the orange ribbon down now? It symbolizes that their story doesn't matter. That's what it symbolizes. You're outright telling them that we've done our piece, but like you said, we've moved on. And your story was important for us in that moment, but it's no longer important now. So when I think of a young Indigenous person who has possibly gone to one of these places and has tied a ribbon for their grandma or their great-grandma or their auntie or their uncle, and then they walk by two days later or even a week later, even a month later, and the ribbon's gone, it's like having something taken from you. You went up there with intention, with good intention of memory and love, and someone has taken that from you, right? We don't do that with our children. We give them, you know, grandma or grandpa or auntie or uncle or cousin gives them a teddy bear, right? Most of us have blankets <laughs> going into university or college that we, you know, we've <laughs> know had forever, <laughs> right? Yeah. Uh, my son, my son took up his, his squishy pillow that he's, he's had forever. And these are core pieces of ourselves. We have sentimental attachment to that. And I would challenge someone who is non-Indigenous who says to me, oh, they need to have this bear with them if they're going to come to the sleepover. And I say, no, they can't have it. They can have it at your house in your space. Or they can bring it this one time. But, you know, it's kind of an eyesore. Or, you know, we don't really talk about that topic during this week at my house. Could you imagine how that parent would respond? Couldn't imagine. I'm a parent. Yeah. So, I mean, it's the same thing. And that's what's happening is when we are taking these pieces down, we are saying that your story only matters when it matters to us. And we're depersonalizing those experiences, which is very harmful. And that's it. Your story only matters when it matters to us. Mm -hmm. Now, that brings us to another aspect of commemoration that I would love to hear your perspective off. And that's Remembrance Day, because there is a grief aspect of it. There's a colonial imperial aspect of it. There's the war and trauma and loss aspect and this quote unquote fight for freedom. Can I ask your perspectives on commemorating Remembrance Day? And even if we can segue into commemorating uh, Indigenous Veterans Day on November 8th. Yeah, I think, you know, it, that's that's a tough one, like you said, because there's so many um, intersections into that. One, the historical piece of what would happen for our Indigenous people should they go and fight for Canada, how they were, they were lied to about what they would be gifted in return to do this, what was taken from them, um, whether that be a status, Indigenous identity, fighting. Also, the idea of fighting for a country that did nothing but harm your people. Now, this one has always been odd to me because I think about if my neighbor came over and let's say damaged my property and then the town came to me and said, okay, you know, we want to protect this field and the field is over in my neighbor's property and my neighbor comes to me and says, hey, I really need your help right now. I probably would be like, no, 
and I hope your field disappears, right? That's a normal, <laughs> a natural human instinct to do it. It is. It is. Right? Most certainly. Most certainly. But then if my neighbor comes to me and says the exact same thing, I really need your help right now. And you know what? If you help me, I promise to never disturb you again. You know, I'll even pay for the repairs. Even though it goes, it goes against your moral code, they're offering you what you think is going to be peace. Okay, good. He's never going to bother me again. I'm not going to have to pay for this. So although I don't like what I'm about to do, maybe in the long run, this is going to give me a sense of peace. And essentially, that is what happened in those situations when we talk about the war and fighting for Canada and all of those things. But then the neighbor comes and he destroys my land the next day and doesn't pay for the repairs. Right? So it's like, I think for me, acknowledgement, acknowledging what really happened in getting Indigenous people, first off, to fight for Canada, to fight in those wars, acknowledging what happened to them after, but also acknowledging the contributions that they made. Like, if we look at the history of Toronto itself, and, um, you know, there there is, you can watch acknowledgement by John Elliott on YouTube and it's this wonderful short that actually tells the story the true the true story of what happened in Toronto in the signing of the treaty there it's just the sacrifices and contributions that indigenous people and those nations made so that way people like my mother because my mother is non-indigenous newcomers other settlers and Europeans can now live on this land in the way that we do with the privileges that we have and, you know, I, I think that there has just been so much left out in the story. And I would really like to see that being brought up on Remembrance Day, that those stories being told. And it's interesting to me, I'm kind of half and half. I, I'm happy <laughs> that there's a day for recognition of, you know, Native veterans and Indigenous veterans. But, like, why do we always have to keep things separate? Like, why why can't we start to do the work so that it is actually inclusive? And the only reason I can think is, again, it comes back to the idea of us having to own that we were doing it wrong in the first place. But, like, if we, if we can show that we can, can work on these things and learn to do better, It shows the rest of the world that those things are possible. When we make mistakes, we have to own up to them and we have to to write it and to, you know, not just say the words of apologies, but in action apologize to those people that we've harmed. And that's the accountability piece. Mm -hmm. No doubt. Thank you for that, Nadia. One more question around that. Is it offensive and I ask this because many people have been asking me and I, I, I refer to, you know, an elder such as little brown bear, cause I'm certainly not equipped to answer it. Mm-hmm. Is it offensive to speak a land acknowledgement before Remembrance Day commemorations? Okay. So this is something that I've actually been seeing ongoing in schools as well and at other places where they will say a land acknowledgement and then they'll go right into the idea of Canada, Right. And I think, to me, it is offensive. That's just my personal take on it. I don't want to speak for any other Indigenous person or nation. 
for me, if you are acknowledging that this land is traditional territory of someone else who has protected it and worked for it and lived and breathed for it, that should be the end of it, right? Now, that's not to say that we can't have Remembrance Day, right? I mean, Canada is here. It is a country. (laughs) But we need to be able to thank Indigenous people for the contributions and the sacrifices that they made so Canadians can live with freedom and privilege. I I just think that you talk about the tokenism. And, and, you know, in the movie that I was in, that movie acknowledgement that John Elliott wrote and uh, directed and produced is like, what are you actually saying when you say a land acknowledgement? Like, do you actually know, like, the history of this country? Like, when you're saying these pieces, what do they actually mean to you? And what are you hoping other people are going to get from this? Because if there is no meaning and a, a emotional um, believing into that land acknowledgement, then why say it at all? Right? And now, I do want them to be said, <laughs> but I don't want it to just be a, a because we have to. There should be real purpose to these words. And that's something that, you know, I I grew up with in my teachings from my dad and my grandfather. And although we don't always follow it, (laughs) right? (laughs) When you say words, they should have purpose and they should have meaning. Um, We know that through our teenage years. Um, Is that, you know, but really think about what you're saying and think about how it is going to affect what what is that energy output that's going to happen and how is that going to affect those around you when you speak these words. And I think that's what we need to be taking into consideration. Thank you, Nadia. And, and I've recognized so often a land acknowledgement is spoken as a recitation, as an obligation. Mm-hmm. There's no even no intonation in it. There's no feeling. There's no emotion in it. And that's the unfortunate because then you recognize that why are we, you said it so beautifully. Why are you saying this? And what's the purpose yeah. of it? Right. So thank you for that. Can I ask you in terms of uh, Lighthouse and our organization and children's grief, maybe some suggestions or any kind of recommendations from, if I may ask, an Indigenous perspective, or even as your perspective, Nadia, as an Indigenous woman, Mm -hmm. what can we do or what should we do uh, above and beyond what we've discussed today in terms of listening and learning and what have you to further the accessibility to children's grief support? for Indigenous communities? I think trying to work on figuring out, like we said, where the cracks are. Where are the cracks? And how do we fill those with meaningful, I guess as we say, skills or solutions to supporting Indigenous communities? So I think that we have to figure out, okay, so if we're going into a rural community and we know that they don't have strong internet access, great, what is the solution to that? How do we work around that as an organization to still offer these pieces? Can we do free trainings for maybe someone in their community who is wanting to help? Can we give them access? to those kinds of solutions, but also in a way that when you're inviting that person in, 
to not just invite them in, but to invite other members of the community and say, okay, this is what, you know, we found has worked for us, but we want to know what works for you. And how can we, you know, put these pieces together so that way whoever it is that's representing the, the healing person in your community can have access you know, to these pieces and can share that with the community. It's a really tricky one. I'm not saying it's going to be easy. It is probably going to be fairly difficult to navigate, <laughs> but, to, but to do that work, right? So there's, I mean, there's little pieces. And really the important piece is that when you go in or when you start talking to and listening to each community to understand that every community is going to do their own thing, it's not going to be, you know, uh, a one, you know, paintbrush kind of solution. And we tend to do that here in the Western world. It's like, okay, well, this theory has been proven, and, and so we're going to introduce this to this agency and this agency and this agency. And, you know, all the agencies are aware of it. That's great, right? But sometimes it doesn't work with all of the populations we're working with. And so we have to adapt, and we have to change, and we have to figure out what's working and what's not working. And so I think if we're looking at every individual, every community um, as their own, we'll be able to start implementing a meaningful, as I, I say, meaningful collaboration with these communities in ways that we can support them. It's hard work. It's not easy work. But when the work is done, it can be such a beautiful thing. And so much good can come out of it. So it, for me, it's really trying to figure out why don't they have access, what's stopping them from having access, and what are some of the solutions they see that they feel would be helpful, and how can we support that? And you mentioned in terms of it can't be a standardized approach, which we do so often in social services, mm -hmm. across everything, really. We, we standardize it and then make it cookie cutter and then works for everybody, but it certainly doesn't because it has to be so individualized. Mm -hmm. As we all know, even grief within demographics of communities is extremely individual and it pertains to the person, the child, the youth themselves. Mm -hmm. And I think learning, I think that more organizations need to take the time to learn. So whether that's going, as you said, to, you know, um, the bear's den and being a part of sacred fires or being a part of sweat lodges going, there's a really beautiful place out. I believe it's somewhere close into the Midland Penetanguishing Georgian Bay area, and it's called the Anoctic Healing Lodge. They do a wonderful training for organizations to help understand how they work within their own space with Indigenous peoples. So we need to start doing those trainings and having Indigenous speakers come in and talk to us and teach us. That's also another key component for being able to do that work. Nadia, would you mind repeating where that is? It's Penetanguishing area, but can you repeat what it's called? I Anak? believe it's the. It's called the Enotic Healing Anotic. Lodge. Enotic. Okay. <laughs> it's. Uh, I'm not exactly sure how to spell it. <laughs> <laughs> I can um, look it up. But if you, yeah, it's it's a. I've I've done. I've been there myself before. Um, during harvest season in October, and it was just. It was such an amazing experience, and I I gained so much from it. So I think having Indigenous healers and elders come in and speak to us is also a great key to, and it's a great resource. 
It is absolutely sounds like a wonderful resource that uh, that I believe our organization, many organizations, would align with in terms of of the learning. Because I feel so humbled and 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 uh, and honored that I can attend the Sacred Fire and and the Bears Den. I mean, it just came by sheer synchronicity that I was supporting somebody who was I was supporting someone else who led me there and introduced me to Little Brown Bear, and then that's when I met you. And the learning grows, and I think a lot of it has to do with being present and attending learnings and, and reaching out to, to communities and learning from elders and individuals, how, how we can, you know, dismantle yeah. a lot of the, the trauma and what have you that's, that's been inflicted. Yeah, and another resource I would also recommend is the Woodland Cultural Center in Brantford. There's so much wonderful stuff going on there in regards to Indigenous learning. Oh, wonderful. Thank you, Nadi. Thank you for those resources. You know, especially now you mentioned in terms of social media, I know you're very active on on social media. As I understand, that's also a medium with which we are gaining a lot more knowledge and resources. There's a Biff Naked, I think you might know who Biff Naked is. Mm-hmm. And she posted um, a documentary I'd never heard of by the New Yorker called Joe Buffalo about a Indigenous skateboarder, right? And it was yeah, just a, yeah. You know, <laughs> he's actually you know, just been sponsored by Tony Hawk. So that's a really cool. I heard, We're really I heard excited for really, that collaboration. Really cool. <laughs> but the story of the assimilation institutions and, and his and his life just spoke volumes in terms of what probably many indigenous youth are are experiencing. And then there's the work of Jesse Thistle and and his uh his book, you know, which was From the Ashes, which speaks a lot to indigenous mm-hmm. definitions of homelessness, you know, which was very mm-hmm. powerful. Nadia, I could I could interview you for another four or five hours, but I know how busy you are, and uh, <laughs> I have a child to pick up later on. I can't thank you enough for joining us today and and sharing your wisdom, your thoughts, and your insights. Well, thank you for having me on. As we would say, Walalan, thank you very much, um, and it was I, it was great to be able to have this space. Walalan, uh, for more information on her incredible work and her life story, you could visit Nadia at nadiageorge.com. And this has been the Lighthouse Beacon Podcast. For more information on our work, our programs, and our services, you can visit us at www.grievingchildrenlighthouse.org. Thank you very much, everyone. Stay safe, everyone.